the church and state, starting the year by breaking all the rules. In this episode of Church and State, Brian McCall and Christopher Ferrara address how Catholics are rightly scandalized by a pornographic and blasphemous book authored in the 1990s by Cardinal Tucho Fernandez, whom Francis appointed to oversee the dicastery on doctrine. Yet this falls right in line with Francis's latest document, Fiducia Supplicans, which allows priests to bless so-called couples, who exist as couples due to their decision to engage in unnatural vice, an intrinsic evil and one of the four sins which cries to heaven for vengeance. This document is evil. It goes against the natural and divine law established by God himself and against all of Catholic tradition. And our two Catholic lawyers also delve into how the American judicial system is being weaponized to advance political ideology. Welcome to the first edition of Church and State with Chris Ferrara and Brian McCall in 2024. Well, here we are. A momentous year, I think, has begun. To say the least, we're not going to be uh, able to uh, accept some of the things we're going to see in this coming year. I'm sure we'll see absolutely unprecedented developments in both church and state. Well, we will certainly see a federal election, maybe even a conclave in the Vatican. Oh, I'm pretty sure there'll be a conclave in the coming year. Just the look, uh, from the looks of him, he's uh, declining rapidly. Yes, although uh, we have been saying that for a couple of years, and he seems to hang on. But you're right; it it, it doesn't uh, health wise doesn't look too good, and morally things are not looking too good in Rome. So our first story we're going to talk about the church. One of the stories that broke uh, right after and around Christmas was a book was discovered. Uh, having been written by Fernandez, the head of the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith. Remember, that's the head of the organization that's supposed to be watching doctrine, but also investigating priests that have been engaged in sexual abuse. Remember that fact. Uh, this book's written when he was a priest, Father Fernandez, in the late 1990s, called Passion and Mysticism, Spirituality and Sensuality. And Take my word for it. People have published online uh, chapters of the book. It is pornographic. It could not be more. It could not be more explicit. And again, I don't use that as an exaggeration. It, it is pornographic. It describes in really excruciating detail aspects of the marital act that should not be described in print, let alone by a priest who is not really supposed to know this kind of detail, shall we but say. But apparently, as, as some have suggested, he does know these details yeah. and has been involved in sexual relations. So well, that he speaks from personal familiarity. It certainly reads that way. It certainly reads that way. Now, and there's also a blasphemous chapter, essentially where he describes a young girl who claimed to have some mystical experience of our Lord on the beach of Galilee that involved basically sexual encounter. I mean, it's the last temptation of Christ type things. And that's the part that's clearly blasphemous. But more importantly, I think, within this, and this is written in the late 1990s, turn of the century, turn of the millennia, he basically writes about Ill, you know, pornography in a positive light. He writes about homosexual sex and how, you know, basically, even if it is done this way, it's still 
beautiful and it still represents this mystical union with God. Uh, essentially, the position he now takes as a cardinal that, oh, this is all good, even if it's not a marriage, is already there in this book, you know, over 23 years ago. The way things are shaping up, it seems that the late motif of this entire pontificate is the normalization of sodomy. I, I get you. You coined the phrase "give sin a chance." I think maybe it's "give sex a chance." It's really yeah. Not only like that, uh, apparently the governance of the church has now been handed over to sex fiends like yeah. this cuckoo Fernandez. But uh, we also find, and this has just been announced by Cardinal Moro Gambetti, that uh, following the Pope's document on blessings with its phony baloney distinction between pastoral blessings and liturgical blessings, there will now be blessings of homosexual couples, I repeat, couples in St. Peter's Basilica. So if we needed an indication that we've entered the time of the great apostasy, as if one were lacking, this would be it. Exactly. I mean, talking about an abomination of desolation in the temple of God, there you have it. And again, as soon as they say blessing a couple, right, this is classic modernist fashion. They go, well, well, what if you're on a big pilgrimage and there happens to be, you know, someone engaged in these things in the crowd? Can you not bless the pilgrims? This was never a problem, right? I've never seen a traditional priest uh, of any stripe. Go around handing out questionnaires before blessing pilgrims on a pilgrimage. Well, let me know all your sins before I decide whether to give you a blessing. Right? This is a total straw man argument. When you say bless a couple, it is not just blessing individuals. It is blessing them as a couple. What makes them a couple is not that they're they're on a pilgrimage. It's that they're engaged in a simulation of the marriage act. Well, fiducia supplicans is designed precisely to allow for a request by a couple, so-called, whose relationship is based on sodomy for a blessing of the two of them as a couple engaging in sodomy. There's no error. It's, no it's like if, if you and I get together, we form a conspiracy to rob a bank and go to a priest. Hey, could you bless our conspiracy? I mean, that's essentially what, you know, the equivalent is of what they're doing. But, but again, a deeper issue here is as bad, and this goes for the whole Francis pontificate. As bad as this is, as explicit as this is, and I don't recommend anybody read these chapters. They're, they're, they're awful. It is, a matter of degree, but it is on the same path that the post-conciliar church has been since Vatican II distorted the understanding of marriage and the role of the ends of marriage and the subordination of the human sexual faculty to the primary end of marriage. Right? This all flows from that because you normalize these things only when you place the pleasure and whatever they want to call it, the comfort of the spouses as the primary end of marriage that this is all allowed. And I find it interesting that this book was written simultaneously with these infamous fireside chats given by John Paul II, published as the theology of the body, to exalt this sort of sensual nature of the body. Now, again, I, be clear, John Paul II was not near, was not anywhere as pornographic as this. He had some decency, at least. But it's still, this is an extension of that obsession with human sensuality. Well, this reflects his phenomenological background, which always seeks to root 
knowledge in the immediate experience of the human person. And so, therefore, there'll be a bodily orientation to his hmm. theology of human sexuality. But no one really understands what he was getting at. And now we have these lay commentators who say that they can unpack <laughs> theology of the body. But having said that, if you read a document like Veritatis Splendor, Jean-Paul II is absolutely clear on the intrinsic immorality of sexual acts, especially sodomy, which is an act of great depravity outside of marriage. And because he called it what it is, an intrinsic evil, he stressed in that document that there are absolutely no exceptions to the commandment forbidding adultery in its various form. No exceptions under any circumstances. The most that you could say of a person who violates the commandment is that there could be a diminution of culpability in given circumstances, but never an excuse from committing. Never a a blessing of it. (laughs) Never never an excuse from committing the sin. So the unfortunate consequence of the theology of the body, this phenomenological approach to the faculty of sexuality, combined with Vatican II's demotion of the procreation rearing of children to a level of being co-equal with relief of concupiscence, has been what we see today. And by the way, on that issue, Vatican II, putting two things on the same level, procreation and the rearing of children and the relief of concupiscence, that has disastrous implications. The reason the church always taught that the primary aim of marriage is the procreation and rearing of children is simple, the eternal destiny of man. The purpose of marriage is to fill up the number of the elect. Father Gruner used to speak of a priest who would say to couples as they left the altar following a marriage ceremony, why avoid and woe to you if you do not accept all of the children that God will give you as his gifts. Because that is the purpose of marriage. We live for eternity. We are, in fact, in eternity now. It's just that we experience it differently. It's the nunc stans, as the Latinists say, the now that remains. But when we leave this world, we will be in eternity, a timeless eternity. And our mission in this life, to the extent that marriage is our vocation, is to bring souls into existence as procreators with God. There is no other aim of marriage that could even begin to approach that in importance. And that's why the church always discussed the other end as the relief of concupiscence. Mm. That's a lower bodily aim. Yes. And you will see nothing like that in heaven. All of that will fall away. It's really as you result, a result of this phenomenological philosophy. So instead of the perennial philosophy that looks outside of ourselves, looks to objective reality, objective truth, this looks at the personal experience, right? What, how do I experience things and attempts to build a philosophical system from that. Now, in John Paul II's case, combined with the phenomenology, he still at least knew church doctrine. So he kind of could constrain the effects of this philosophy because from his cultural theological background, he knew, well, okay, well, I can't take this to its conclusions. But when you get to the next era, someone like Francis that is not constrained by anything, I mean, he thinks doctrine is just silly, you see where this can just be taken to its ultimate extreme. I'm thinking of an encyclical he wrote on philosophy. I forget the Mm -hmm. title of it. And in that encyclical, he said, and I I, I laughed when I read this, I'm convinced that we need a metaphysics. Yes. (laughs) In other words, 
we need a set of propositions reflecting the adequation of the mind to the real world out there, not just a reflection upon our own experience. As trapped in this enfleshed state, the uh, so-called phenomenological experience. Mm. So his idea that we need a metaphysics is basically a slight of the entire philosophical tradition of the church, the moderate realism of St. Thomas Aquinas and the moderate idealism at the same time. So what we need to get back to objective truths, which are recognized whether we personally experience them or not, because those truths govern our very existence. They're inscribed in our being. Yeah, I, I sort of imagined when I read that uh, Aristotle be invited to his particular judgment and say, hey, by the way, 2,500 years before you were born, I actually wrote a book called Metaphysics. Maybe you should have read it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, without, without a metaphysics to understand the real world, there is no understanding of the real world. No. You only have subjectivist impressions, emotivism, mm. and so forth, but no real understanding, and you're not able to predicate of the real what a thing really is. And that's the other problem. This is what Romano Amerio has talked about because of the abandonment of Thomistic metaphysics. And it's basically genius categorization of the real world. Because after all, Aquinas was really a scientist in the best sense of the word. The abandonment of metaphysics has led to what Romano Amerio calls a loss of essences in post-conciliar thinking. Essentialism has been under attack since the time of the modern enlightenment. The idea that one thing is distinct from another by the divine decree and will always be distinct. This is, this is man, this is woman, this is right, this is wrong. Because of the very nature of things inscribed in reality by the creator. If you abandon that, if you lose essences, your thinking becomes cloudy. And I think Father McLucas once said, the problem with theology originates, first of all, with bad philosophy. And that is exactly what we see in the progress of the so-called Enlightenment, that the corruption of philosophy led to the corruption of theology. Absolutely. Well, speaking about the uh, contrast between objective reality and emotivism, uh, we're going to turn to the state in which uh, the campaign agenda for what appears to be the leading candidate for the presidential election is not rallies or door knocking, but court appearances. <laughs> it's funny. I saw Donald Trump give a press conference down on Wall Street yesterday after one of his innumerable cases. They said, kind of, what percentage of your time is being spent in court cases and what percentage on campaign trail? And he basically said, it's all the campaign. When I'm in court, it's a campaign appearance, which is kind of uh, humorous, but not far off the mark. Well, this is what we're seeing here is the absolute breakdown of law and order yes. throughout the system, every rule being bent and broken to get one man. Well, to get, and it's, him, it, to get him to get him and prevent him from ascending once again to the presidency. I've never seen anything like it. And again, it's not speculation. As he pointed out yesterday, the attorney general in New York, and this is true of the one in, in Georgia, the DA, ran on a platform of, I'll do whatever it takes to, quote, get Donald Trump, right? <laughs> that was how they were politically elected, and that's how they're delivering. And this this case that closed yesterday in New York is really outrageous. It's a, a civil statute, not a crime, uh, that has never really been used before like this. And essentially what they've alleged is when he borrowed millions of dollars from poor, unfortunate institutions like Wall Street banks that have no lawyers or anyone to protect themselves, being sarcastic, he might have overestimated the value of some of his assets. And the consequence of this is 
they all got paid back their loans and nobody was harmed. But this is such a horrible thing that we need to spend months and years in, in thousands of pages of documents and testimony and millions of dollars pursuing a court case. <laughs> well, think about the stature under which he's been charged civilly here. New York Executive Law yeah. 6312. No requirement of a victim. No. no elements of fraud need to be proved. And so you get a politically elected partisan prosecutor like this idiot who's prosecuting Trump. He's a real mediocrity, a moron. And a judge who takes his glasses off and smiles for the camera like a clown and has behaved like a clown throughout the trial. Put the two of them together and they're poised, it seems to me, to issue a decision by this judge basically divesting Trump's entire business empire. <laughs> Based literally on nothing. There were no victims. The banks were all paid back. One of the banks sent an executive to testify on behalf of Trump, who basically said, well, what Trump thinks his, his properties are worth is a matter of opinion. And we don't agree. So we do our own due diligence and we arrived at a different number, but we still gave him the same amount that he requested. Right. Because the value that we think is appropriate supported the loan. We weren't hurt. We got paid back. We made a profit. We'd love to do business with him again. Based on those facts, this lunatic judge appears ready to divest Trump of his entire wow. business empire. Unbelievable. <laughs> then you talk about the criminal case. Yes. Look at Jack Smith's indictment. I can hardly believe that I'm reading this. He's indicted basically for challenging an election. So the, <laughs> the indictment begins, despite having lost, the defendant was determined to remain in power. So for more than two months, the defendant spread lies that there had been outcome determinative fraud in the election and that he had actually won. These claims were false and the defendant knew that they were false. Imagine indicting a politician for making a false statement. There'd be no politicians <laughs> out of jail. <laughs> and of course, Trump obviously didn't know that they were false. Not that that's even relevant because false speech is protected. Not only did he not know that they were false, almost half the country agrees with him hmm. that the 2020 election was stolen. Think about it. He needed only a total of 22,000 votes spread across three of the battleground states to reach a tie in the Electoral College. And that tie would have gone to Trump because the House was then in a Republican majority. 22,000 votes. And we're supposed to believe that there was no irregularity sufficient to tip the election 22,000 votes against Trump, despite millions of mail-in ballots, unprecedented, drop boxes, ballot harvesting, inadequate or non-existent signature verification, the barring of Republican observers from the counting tables, and so on and so forth. And we're told the big lie, and this is the big lie, not what Trump said. This is the most secure election <laughs> in American history. It was the most insecure election in American history by design. So Trump gets indicted for remarking the obvious. And the indictment specifies things that are all protected speech, making phone calls, publishing tweets, and so on. We, we've entered, we've gone through the looking glass into a realm of legal insanity with this indictment and with the other indictments. There isn't a single crime alleged in any of the four indictments lodged against Trump. 
Well, but at the core of this, and I agree with everything there, but the core of this is a real danger with this weaponization of the, you know, the judicial part, which they don't seem to really care about, is that if you start this process, right, it's like a little kid who hits another little kid. Oh, you hit me, I'm going to hit you back. Hit you last. I hit you last. That it's going to unleash a political process of essentially, well, when the victims of this get in, well, why don't we just do the, the same thing? Which is why Trump's lawyers have interestingly raised this issue of presidential immunity. So I'd like to get your thoughts on this. Beyond everything you just said about the phoniness of these charges, Trump has said, look, you can't even bring these cases because presidents are immune for things that they do in their official capacity. And the only recourse against that is to impeach them which happened, and I was acquitted, and under double jeopardy, I'm done. So what do you make of the importance of these arguments that his lawyers are making? Well, here's my take on it. And and if John Sauer, who I consider to be a a legal genius, is listening, I humbly offer a a correction of his approach. I've read his briefs. I've read some of the amicus briefs. On the question of presidential immunity, to me, the issue is very simple. Presidents are immune from acts that are within the scope of their authority. So during the oral argument, Sauer was asked by one of the judges on the D.C. Circuit panel, well, could the president order SEAL Team 6 to kill his political opponent? And Sauer gave an answer that I thought was disastrously wrong. Well, it's a qualified yes. He would have to be impeached and convicted of that crime before he could be prosecuted. That's not the answer. Hmm. The answer is quite simple. Ordering a hit on your political opponent exceeds the scope of your authority. Now, every officer... And the president is not an officer of the United States, by the way. But every lower level officer appointed by the president enjoys immunity if he acts within the scope of his authority. You can't sue the members of Congress for voting a certain way. You can't sue a judge for rendering a judicial decision unless you could prove the judge was bribed. But within the scope of immunity, which is accorded to every official, there is an immunity from prosecution for official acts. So what did Trump do here? He made phone calls. He told his chief of staff to make phone calls. He had contacts with certain officials. He published tweets. All of these things were within the scope of his authority as president. That's the argument for presidential immunity. And it would be ridiculous if the president, who is not an officer of the United States, but is, in fact, the executive branch, would have less immunity than the officials he appoints. Now, interestingly, though, a lot of people have brought up, a lot of those on the other side legally have brought up the issue that Gerald Ford pardoned Richard Nixon, and they attempt to build a syllogism to mean, therefore, presidents have no immunity. I mean, it's really not a sound logical argument to just say, well, Ford decided to pardon Nixon, therefore, presidents have no immunity. Well, that's wrong, because the pardon would have regarded what was a garden variety crime that obviously exceeds the scope of presidential authority. No president has the right to commit garden variety crimes. He can't commit murder. He can't rob a bank. Mm-hmm. He can't embezzle funds from the United States Treasury and send them to an offshore account. So, again, the argument about immunity is an argument about acts that are ultra-virus, beyond the scope of your authority. If the president, like any other like any other appointed official, and again, the president is not an officer as such, Mm. but if the act taken by this person exceeds the scope of the authority of his office, then of course he's going to be liable for that. 
That's the whole issue you worry about when you bring suits under Section 1983 against public officials, that they act within the scope of their authority. If they acted maliciously, did it exceed the scope of their authority? If a cop decides he's going to kill a rival to, for his girlfriend's affections, that exceeds the scope of his authority, even though he's in uniform and he can be sued and would be responsible for punitive damages. So the issue of presidential immunity is simply the same issue at present with other officials. Namely, is the act in question within the scope of his authority? Now, here's how they got around it in the D.C. Circuit. They made this ridiculous distinction. Oh, when, when President Trump acted, granted it was only speech-related things like making phone calls and mm. asking people to do things, but he did that as a candidate, not mm. as the president, which is a fake distinction because you could say that about almost any presidential action that a president takes with a view to voters being happy with it yes. and enhancing his prospects for re-election. Oh, he declared war on Iraq because he thought it would have popular support and get him elected. He needed a war. Right. To get Absolutely. himself back into office like the film Wag the Dog has made <laughs> hilariously apparent. And that's why he declared the war. So that's outside the scope of his authority. He was acting as a candidate in the run up to an election. That's a distinction without a difference. If the president takes actions that he can take in the course of his ordinary duties, again, making phone calls, having officials do things for him that are not illegal in themselves, then he's immune. It's that simple. You can't make distinctions between the president as candidate and the president as president. Yes. No, I, I agree. I, I think Sauer is a, a fantastic lawyer, but I was surprised by his answer. It was it was sort of a trap to hold yourself to an extreme position rather than making the proper distinction. Well, it could happen to any one of us, too, know, under, yeah. under pressure. You know, lawyers have a saying, there are, there are three kinds of cases. The case you plan to argue, the case you actually argue, and the case you wish you had argued. Yeah. <laughs> Very true. But still, this is going to be interesting. I think we have the first uh, caucus, Iowa caucus, coming up in just uh, days. And uh, I think we're going to see more of this throughout uh, 2024. Well, let's just hope that uh, none of these cases get to trial before the election in November. <laughs> that their goal is clearly to do that. But well, they want him in jail yeah. cell. The only way they're going to yeah. stop him is to literally physically confine him behind bars. Well, thank you, Chris, for your always witty and insightful comments. Uh, but before we go, we always like to talk about Our Lady of Fatima as our hope out of this conundrum in church and state. And I want to let you know about an important campaign that's been launched recently by the Fatima Center. We stand on the verge of a 100 years of disobedience to Our Lady of Fatima's requests for the consecration of Russia by the Pope in union with all the world's Catholic bishops and the communion of reparation as practiced within the first Saturday devotion. To help reverse this trend and gain graces for Russia's consecration, the Fatima Center asks you to join us and hundreds of Catholics all over the world to offer Our Lady a spiritual bouquet of 100,000 first Saturdays by the 100th anniversary of her request for the first Saturdays, which occurred on December 10th, 1925. So December, December 10th, 2025, we'll have the 100th anniversary. In Our Lady of Fatima, God has provided the only solution he wills to establish in the world, devotion to his mother's immaculate heart. May this offering be pleasing to our Lord and Our Lady and help merit the graces we need for the ultimate triumph of the immaculate heart. You can join this uh, 100,000 by the 100th anniversary at 
Fatima.org slash 100 by 100. And we'll have a link in the description of this video. If you're not familiar with the Five First Saturdays, there's a lot of information on the Fatima Center website. It's not very complicated. You receive communion on the first Saturday of five consecutive months while going to communion within eight days, saying five decades of the rosary, meditating for 15 minutes on the mystery of the rosary, and offering these good works in reparation to the offenses against Our Lady's Immaculate Heart. Uh, so if you're already saying a daily rosary, trying to go to Mass, just get there on five. Five in a row, first Saturdays, is really it's, – it's, it's the one thing we can do, right? We can't consecrate Russia with the Pope, but we can honor this request. And there's a promise associated with your fulfillment of that. And why don't you tell them about that? Yes, Our Lady offered a promise for those who complete the five first Saturdays that she would bring them into heaven and rescue them from purgatory. So it, we could do it for the greater greater reason, but there's also the personal benefit as well as the promises uh, associated with it. Well, the principle of rewards and punishments animates the entire divine plan. And God is the ultimate rewarder and punisher. So nothing wrong with seeking the reward, as the Council of Trent made clear. Very true. Well, thank you, everyone, for watching. Thank you, Chris. I hope to see you in a couple of weeks. Take care. God bless. This episode of Church and State is brought to you by the Fatima Center. Copyright 2024. All rights reserved. For more resources and to support this vital apostolate with your donation, visit our website, Fatima.org, or call us at 1-800-263-8160. And please join us in offering Our Lady a spiritual bouquet of 100,000 First Saturdays for the 100th anniversary of Our Lady's request of this devotion. Sign up for this First Saturday Challenge 100 by 100. Update your status and track our progress around the world at Fatima.org 100 by 100. Along with the consecration of Russia, the First Saturday Devotion is one of the two principal means by which God wills to establish in the world devotion to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. For peace in the world and in the Church, and more importantly, for the conversion and salvation of many souls, it is essential that every Catholic live the Fatima message. Our Lady of the Rosary, pray for us. Long live Christ the King.